This morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 to 21. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Sorry, it's 2 Corinthians. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have slides up for you, so don't worry about that. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the word to him, world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of God. Well, why are we talking today about this ministry of reconciliation? We are talking about it because it is so easy for the church to lose its mission or any organization to lose its mission of why it exists. I once asked an organization or a leader, what is the mission of your organization? And they looked at me puzzled and said, oh, that's a deep question. And I thought, that's really, really not a deep question. But it is so easy for an organization to set out with a clear vision and then lose it along the way. We call that mission drift. One example of this is Howard Pugh was uh, the president of Sun Oil Company. His father had established the company, and then Howard had helped grow it so that Howard became quite wealthy. But you would not want to make Howard's first identification wealthy businessman. No, he primarily saw himself as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so he actually was very generous with his money. He gave away 90% of his fortune to charities. Uh, he was friends with Billy Graham, so he helped establish Christianity Today, the magazine. He helped fund the founding of Gordon-Conwell Seminary because he wanted a seminary where pastors could go and, and study the scriptures and not be taught uh, 
theology that said the, the Bible isn't the word of God or anything like that. So he, he really cared about the gospel, and he wanted to support ministries like that. He even established the Pew Charitable Trust. You may have heard of it. It's like a supporter of NPR. Um, and the mission to start out with, the goal was, we are going to fund organizations that promote the gospel. And they did that. And then Howard died, and he had kids that took over the business, and then grandkids. And after a while, they no longer support gospel ministries. It is not a part of their mission. It may be, um, if you brought that up, they may cringe at the thought of it if you talk to their board. Uh, now, I don't want you to think that I'm overly concerned about that. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You know, if he wants to let uh, these other organizations have the money, we're not going to worry about that. But what we really should be concerned about is when churches drift or when church's mission to the nation drifts and we start doing things that we never set out to do, that our work is no longer gospel ministry. So I have three points on how we're going to uh, avoid drift. One, we're going to talk about Paul's motivation for the mission. We're going to talk about the mission and what it is. And then we're going to talk about what the message of the mission is. So Paul is so great. We talk about how he... Uh, when before he tells us to do things in his letters, he first uh, tells us our character. We call these the indicatives and the imperatives. It would be like if we, the indicatives would be like I told my child, you were born fast and you love to run. Those are indicatives. These are things about my child. And then the imperative would be, now go run this race to win. And that's what Paul does. And that's what Paul even does for himself where he's like, I... Before I talk about my mission, i got to talk about what's true about me, what Christ has done. And so right from the beginning, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Fear is a, is a motivation for the Apostle Paul. Now you may say, That's, that doesn't sound healthy. Uh, why do you serve your wife so well? I am afraid of her. That would, be, <laughs> that would, that would not sound like a healthy marriage. Uh, but fear is something different in the Bible, and I think it is a word worth holding on to. See, Paul in the previous chapter had talked about, or the previous uh, passage had talked about how he knew he was going to be judged by God. And this motivated this fear. And this coming judgment is something that brought this fear, and yet it was something that Paul said he looked forward to. So how do you look forward to meeting a judge that is about to sentence you? Well, you wouldn't. So Paul knows he's not going to be sentenced to some crime. He knows Jesus already did that. He already paid that price. But uh, he is looking forward to it, and yet there's this fear. So how do we think about this? Some would say, okay, well, when, when Paul says fear, he means, you know, respect. He just means we, he respects uh, God. But then... As Pastor Ryan talked about last week, uh, you know, when you meet God, the thought isn't, I have respect for him. No, it is falling on your face. When Isaiah saw God, he immediately declares himself a man of unclean lips as he falls to the ground. So the word respect doesn't do it justice. When we consider God's infinite holiness and our unfathomable sinfulness, our, our shame... There is such a separation that it produces a healthy, life-giving, awe-inspiring fear. Maybe one way we could think about this is imagine you have a friend who is like the top violinist. 
and they, you go to their concert, and they play this awesome Stradivarius violin worth a million dollars or more. And they're in a rush, and for some reason, they hand you the violin. You wouldn't think, oh, he's holding the violin respectfully. No, there would be a fear, an awe about it, where you're afraid of any oils from your hands getting on the violin. You wouldn't want anyone to bump against it. There is a fear. You would be so above respect with how you would handle this violin. And so Paul knows who he is going to stand before or, or lay before, Jesus Christ. And he knows how righteous Jesus is. And he knows that Jesus, as we read, is going to be over all. He's going to have authority over all. He is so sovereign. And so Paul has a righteous fear. And, and just to be clear, Paul is not going to be held um, to account for his sins. Jesus paid for that. It's like his whole life Paul had been taking tests, and before he came to Christ, he was getting nothing but Fs. And Jesus takes all that, and he throws it away. He burns it all up. And now Paul is saying, I want to get some A's to give to Jesus Christ because he deserves it. I want to show him how much he means to me by doing good so that when I go before him and he judges me, he can be pleased and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Also, Paul has a fear because he remembers the judgment of the loss that is coming. Now, Paul knows that he is secure in Christ, but that there is a world that is lost, that is lost in their sins. They are separated from God, and they need to be reconciled. They need the relationship to be made right. And the only way is for Paul and Christians to go. You can see Paul's heart in Romans 9 when he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for, from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I saw one commentator say it would, it would be like he was saying, I would be willing to be forever cursed. So it's not something that's possible. You can't do a trade with God and say, hey, God, I'll go to hell. You save all of North Africa. That's not an option. But Paul is saying that he loves his countrymen so much. He's so burdened for them that he would be like Jesus and be cursed so they can be saved. And, and that is Paul's motivation. He desires to bear the curse. If that means he's going to be snake bitten on his travels, if that means he's going to go to jail, if that means he's going to be beaten, he's going to do it because he has such a fear of the judgment for the lost. And the judgment is coming. I think uh, medical things and doctors are such great examples of what pastors do in the physical world. Uh, you can imagine like uh, tuberculosis, it's the number eight cause of death in poor countries. 1.6 million people a year die of tuberculosis. And what's really sad about that beyond the death, is we actually have treatment for it. We can give preventative medicines, and we can give medicines even after they have it. And if we, you can imagine if we took one of our doctors to Guatemala to serve the Achi, and they found someone that had tuberculosis, and, and they, re, they diagnosed them, but they didn't want to say it. And, they, and, and maybe we'd ask them, like, why don't you want to tell them? Well, I don't want to be a bearer of bad news. It'd really bum them out. Uh, we don't want them to be sad. Or maybe they say, 
well, I could tell them, but they might not listen to me, and I really hate, you know, feeling like people don't like me. And we would say, no, no, it's your job to, uh, to persuade. We can't make them take the medicine. And you're not a bearer of bad news. You're the bearer of good news. They already know they have a problem, and you have the medicine. Or even worse, could you imagine a village where everybody's got TB and tuberculosis, and, uh, and then everybody's sick and people are dying, and there's one person that seems to be getting better. And everybody notices, huh, that person, they're, they're not having all the symptoms we are. And then they go and ask, what's, what's different about you? Why aren't you sick anymore? And they say, oh, it turns out that there's actually medicine for this disease, and I've been taking it, and I'm much better. The whole community would be so mad. Like, why didn't you tell us about this really good news? I think your neighbors would be right to be upset with you if you don't share the good news of Jesus Christ. It is such good news. Their sin is curable through the cross of Jesus Christ. So help us be this witness. This, this ministry of reconciliation isn't just for your pastors. This is the whole church. So I know it can be intimidating to share the gospel. Uh, if you're nervous, you're among friends. October 8th, during Balloon Fiesta, we're going to go to Visit El Norte Park, and we're going to hand out donuts, we're going to be inviting people to church, and we're going to be looking for open doors to share the gospel. Come and join us. Or go with us to Guatemala. You will have the best time. God will use you. We, you know, we came back in every, uh, from this last trip, and every single person had some story of how God used them, how God grew them. This, and it will be a wonderful opportunity for you to practice sharing the gospel with people who are very friendly and know that we love them. All right, so Paul is also motivated not only from fear, from the coming judgment, but he's motivated by remembering the love of Christ. Look at verses 14 to 16. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So this word controls can also be compels. It can, it can be like the love of Christ binds us, but in a good way, because it binds us to love others. And so Paul, when he meditated on the infinite love of Christ, his response was not, thanks for not sending me to hell, see you when I die. No, it was, I want to now go tell other people. I want to know God, I want to now serve others so that when I'm in church and I'm praying and people think I'm weird, well, I'm being weird for you. And if people think I'm being normal, I want them to know that I'm being normal for them. Whatever they're doing, whatever he's doing, he wants to be for the good of God and his church. I think a good opposite example of this is Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant. If you don't know it, uh, the, the, this is a story of a master who was owed an unpayable amount of money from a servant. This, this servant could have worked every day and not even been able to pay the interest on such a loan. And uh, this master decided to forgive this servant this unfathomable debt. And then later on, the master hears a story from other servants of how this same servant who had been forgiven this huge unpayable debt 
was not forgiving another servant for a very small debt and actually sent him to jail over it. And so the hypocrisy of this servant made the master so mad that the master said, you're going to jail until you pay this off, which means forever and ever. And Paul, we can see, is the opposite of that. Paul knows that he has been forgiven so much that instead of hoarding all the goodness, he is now sharing it and going and finding opportunities to let other people know about the forgiveness of Christ. So when the love of Christ, uh, when he says the love of Christ controls him, it frees him from selfishness. And he's pointing back to the previous statement where he says, uh, he's talking about people thinking he's beside himself, where, they're, where he's saying, even if you don't think that, I'm doing it for you. The love of Christ frees us from selfishness. And so I may ask, how has the love of Christ freed you? How has the love of Christ, when you meditate on it, how has it freed your finances? How has it changed the way you view your family and your friendships and your relationships? How has it changed the way you've interacted with your neighbors? How has it changed the way you come into this church? how you greet people, who you talk to. The love of the Christ controls us, and it makes us ministers of reconciliation. So now let's talk about the mission. First, the mission is a gift from God. Look at verses 18 and 19. It says, he gave us a ministry of reconciliation. And then later, he entrusted us the message of reconciliation. God could have done this, this ministry himself. He could have written on the sky, John 3.16. You know, he could, he could put a heavenly uh, MP3 player or whatever it is in the sky playing the gospel. He could have sent his angels. He could have had pugs go around and share the gospel. <laughs> but instead, he is using us. And this is a gift. It is a privilege you know, it's so easy for us to think that the, the Great Commission is a burden. Oh, because we all like to be liked, at least most of us. Uh, and it's really hard to share the gospel and have people reject you, and it feels personal. feels like the relationship could be severed. Uh, it has a cost. But, you know, there are other things that have costs that we're quick to say are blessings. Parenting has a cost. Uh, you know, before you, you know, when you're single, it's so easy to be selfish, not all, you know, not all of us, some of us more than others, uh, can be selfish with our time, our energy, our money, our thoughts. Being parenting, or parenting is such a sanctifying experience. It costs you a lot, but no, but no righteous parent is going to say it's not worth it, that it's not a blessing. Children are absolutely worth it. Uh, and parenting's faithful, parents' faithful discipling of their children is a huge pillar of the ministry of reconciliation. It's a blessing. And so this ministry is a blessing, and it's something we should be excited about. It's something we should see as a gift and want to share. You know, one example of how good news just can't stay inside you, you got to share it, is eight years ago, my wife was diagnosed uh, with a disease that came from a tick bite, that she took a blood test, they said, you know, you have this disease. And what it meant was she was allergic to all 
mammal products. So that's like almost everything that tastes good. <laughs> so like burgers, pizza, basically eating, eating out was something she could not do. Uh, she, her diet was eggs, chicken, vegetables, and fruit for five years. And then after five years, she noticed uh, her symptoms weren't as bad as they were. She wasn't getting randomly sick anymore. And so she thought, I should go do the blood test again. And they, she did the blood test, and they called her back, and she remembers this call like it was yesterday, where they said, you're zero. You, you don't have this anymore. And you know what? She had to immediately call me. And then I, I, I was so happy. I had to immediately tell all my friends, and we had to have a party where we could eat pizza with cheese <laughs> and celebrate God's goodness. We were so happy. When you have really good news, you have to share it. So, so may I say, if you're not sharing the good news and you're a believer, maybe it's just you're not thinking about it enough. Maybe you need to remember it more. You know, we can be so forgetful. The children of Israel, you know, Moses wasn't gone 40 days and they're already building a, a calf to worship. You, it is so easy to drift. It is so easy to leave behind the gospel. It is so easy to forget the goodness of Christ. And so we need to be in God's word every day. We need to be praying and asking God, Fill me with your love. Control me with your love. And you're controlled by remembering. So let's, and then, and then when you remember, you want to share. So again, this can be difficult. Invite your friends to church. That's really easy. Your friends won't be surprised if you invite your, them to church. That's a very normal thing. And at church, they're going to hear the gospel. They're going to hear it in our songs. They're going to hear it in our liturgy. They're going to hear it in our prayers. They're going to hear it in our sermons. Invite them to church. Let me give you some uh, examples of how you could transition some conversations. Um, you know, maybe people are complaining about what we should do for the homeless. They, oh, Albuquerque should do more for the homeless. You can just say, hey, our church actually volunteers and supports a ministry that serves food to the homeless called the Rocket Noonday. We, you know, I think you would like our church. You should come and check us out. You'll find us very welcoming. Or maybe they say, you know, Christians are just too concerned about politics. You could say something like, you know, our church is centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can come no matter what your political party is. Why don't you come and visit us? And if you don't like it, you don't have to come again. Or, or maybe they say, my family is just so stressed. I can't handle all the anxiety. And you would say, you know... I know stress, I know anxiety, but I also know where I get peace, and that's from God. And I pray to God, and he is a fount of, of endless peace. Why don't you come to church? I know it's an extra thing in your schedule, but I think it'll actually help you endure the rest of the week, because it does for me. And maybe it'll help you reprioritize what's important and what's worth sacrificing for. So this mission is a gift, and we need to be sharing it regularly. Thirdly, this mission is a message. So in verses 18 and 19, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ was reconciled to the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This, this, these are words that we have to share. We can't get around that. The gospel is a message, and we are God's herald. We're his ambassadors. So we're go, it's, think of it as like a foreign emissary like the United States has, 
in Mexico where they're going and they're interacting with business leaders and politicians and they're supporting any other uh, American citizens in Mexico. We're doing that in wherever you guys are, in your workplaces, at school, wherever you volunteer, you're the emissary and you're there to share the message. So I think it's important for us to talk about what the, the mission isn't because it's so easy uh, for us to start thinking, well, the mission is humanitarian work. Now, Christ calls us to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to give water to those who thirst. Those are things we should be doing. But that's not the mission of the church. You know, um, you know God can use our love for our neighbors, our humanitarian work to confirm that God has really done something in our hearts. He can use it to grow us, to love our neighbors more, and to put off self more. But humanitarian work is not the mission. You know, a good example of this is like we do humanitarian work in Guatemala to provide them fresh water. Well, we have fresh water in the United States. We have so much water. I, you know, we have to remind ourselves to drink water. Sometimes I'll sit at the dinner table and I'll realize, oh, I haven't drank water today. I've only drank coffee. Like, like it is just so abundant. We don't even think about it. And so we've got it. Does that mean we've had this humanitarian work that like our hearts are better? Does it mean that in the United States we no longer covet, we no longer steal, we no longer lie, that our families are solid rocks and there's no more divorce? Of course not. These are not true things about us. No, we have to deal with the heart. And that's only something that can be done through the gospel, which is a message of Jesus Christ and his cross and his resurrection. So you may ask, well, why do we do humanitarian work? You're, you're up here all the time talking about uh, providing water filters, building wells. Uh, we have kids on Sunday morning that are assembling snack packs in our student ministry that provide food for uh, children that have new nutritional insecurity. Like, we are doing so many things. We bring more wood to the res than you can imagine, and that just burns up, and it's gone. Well, why do we do that? Why do we, why do we have a, why did we fund a PT clinic in North Africa? There are so many acts of mercy that we have done. Why do we do it? Well, well, Jesus says, one, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do Likewise, we're, called, we're commanded to give joyfully out of the overflow of the things God has blessed us with. You may not have two tunics in your closet, but you do have two shirts. You do have plenty of food in your house, I assume. Uh, if you don't, please come talk to us, and we would love to help you. But, you know, my kids have never missed a meal because we didn't have the money for food. We're so blessed Shame on us if we don't give. We have to give because Christ has given us so much. Now, some may question, are we doing this to win over converts? Uh, that's, that, that is so against what we're talking about. That's like saying, do you just feed your two-year-old in order to share the gospel with them when they're older? No, you love them. You love them as yourself. This is what Christ has called us to, so we do it because Christ has called us. We do it because we love him. Uh, one illustration of this is what I call the song of reconciliation. 
And this is how we think of words and deeds. How do we, how do we think about those? Think of a really good song. Often a really good pop song has a melody that just catches your ear. There's some earworm that you just can't forget. Melodies are the things you sing, the tune that you sing. But then there are the lyrics, and that's the message of the song. Our message is, our lyrics is, are the gospel. And our tune, well, those are our deeds. And, and if, if someone put tuned Amazing Grace to the song Happy Birthday, you would be very irritated with them if they sang it. You would not want to be near them. I would get angry too quickly about this if they had an annoying tune to their lyrics. We as Christians have to have the right lyrics and a tune of love. And if we don't have the tune of love, people will not want to hear our lyrics. And yeah, God can do miraculous things even through people with really bad tunes, but that is not the way it should be. We should have a good tune. And there are churches who would say, well, you share the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. And that would be like saying, teach the world the song Amazing Grace, but, and when necessary, use the lyrics. Well, if you're just walking around humming Amazing Grace, no one's learning those lyrics. That's not the way the world works. We would add our own lyrics, and they would not be Christ-exalting lyrics. And even if they were religious, it would be a message of do good because God's going to judge you. And that's all it would be. And so we need to hum the tune. We need to sing the tune. And we need to remember our love and our deeds. But most of all, our word, which is the gospel. So the mission is a message. And the, message, the mission is God speaking through the church. Look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Isn't it beautiful? And doesn't it give you great courage that God speaks even through Paul? This amazing theologian, this guy that's just so much smarter than me, he still is dependent on God speaking through him. And that should encourage us. It should encourage you to share the good news because it's not about how persuasive you are. There is always another argument that can be made. You cannot defend them all. And so we share and we trust that God is going to do something supernatural. We need him to. If we go on our own strength, it's even the best gospel articulation, the most persuasive, the most beautiful, falls flat. It does nothing. We have to have God speaking through us. And so that encourages us to pray. We need to be praying for our gospel mission. We need to be praying for our preachers that God would speak through them and do a miracle where he saves sinners and where he grows his church and where people hear God's word and respond with joy and love and worship. We need to be praying for our DSC kids volunteers that have a wonderful opportunity to present the gospel to our children. We need to be praying for our evangelism teams that's going out not only on the four times that we talk about, but they're going four times on the calendar that we talk about, but they go throughout the year going to flea markets in different places sharing the gospel. We need to pray that God 
speaks through them. We need to be praying for our missionaries, our, not only our short-term teams that are going to the Navajo Reservation, they're going to Guatemala, they're going to North Africa, but we need to pray for our long-term workers and partners. We need to be praying for the seas, that God gives them wisdom of when to speak boldly and when to be wise with how they cleverly work in the gospel so that you know they don't, they don't get kicked out too soon. Yeah, God needs to give them wisdom for that. We need to be praying for that. We need to be praying that God does a miracle. I asked Mr. C, our former missionary to North Africa, and I asked him, is there anything prophetic you could share with our church? Is there, any, is there anything that we need to change now that you've been gone, you've come back, have you seen any gaps? And he said, you know, he, he had noticed that we pray really small at times that we pray for our kids to have a good time at school, for them to have friend, friends, good things. We pray for God to save people at our church. But he's like, why aren't we just praying that like God ends the religion of Islam? Why aren't we praying that God just saves so many people in North Africa that history books write about it? Is that too big for God? No, it's not. We need to be praying big prayers because we've got a big God who is doing miracles every time someone comes to faith. If you've come to faith, you had a miracle experience. You've been resurrected. And so we need to be praying that God does that more and more. Uh, also, the mission is the church imploring others to be reconciled. We don't just put the gospel out there and say, ah, believe it if you want. No, 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 we implore, we seek to persuade, we do everything in our ability to help people see the goodness of Christ. It's like if you made a meal for someone, you don't just cook the food and leave it in the pot, you serve it, and then you invite people over to enjoy it with you. You call them, and if they're slow at talking and you know the food's getting cold, you may say, hey, hey, come on, the food's warm, let's go enjoy it. And I really love it when, some, when you're at someone's house and they say, oh, no, the way to really enjoy this, you got to put the lime on it. you got to do these different things. That's so great. We need to implore people, hey, God is so good. You know what? Coming to church has really changed my life because of the gospel message that they preach and that I believe in. Let's, let's implore people. And the, the mission is the church imploring people to be reconciled to God. Uh, you know, this last verse, verse 20, is a gospel nugget, and this is the message. Uh, if you're a child or an adult, I encourage you to memorize this. Kids, the verses I memorize as a child, I memorized, have stayed with me, and they become the sweetest because they've been there during the, the good times, and they've been there during the bad times when I didn't know what to pray. And so I want to encourage you, memorize this verse, and then next week, come tell me you did it. I'd love that. I'd be encouraged by that. Let's, let's read it. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's break this into the first half first. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's a lot. Uh, for our sake, who is that talking about? That's talking about the Father. You know, the person that... the of, of the Trinity that so many people think is just vindictive and, and harsh and, and unkind and someone that can't, you can't approach. The scriptures teach it the total opposite. 
I mean, John 3, 16 that everybody remembers. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then here, for our sake, he made him to be sin. It's God the Father that is actively involved in cursing the son so that we can have our curse removed and that we can be blessed. Do you see the love of God? You know, this, this passage and, and, and the rest of 2 Corinthians uh, is weaving this idea that all three persons of the Trinity are active in our redemption and are all willing agents in that work. So for our sake, God the Father, for us, out of love for us, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So Jesus Christ, his son, his perfect son, who was tempted in every way. He was tempted by Satan. He was, had no place to lay his head. He knew poverty, even though he deserved all the riches of heaven. He never lashed out at someone that was being arrogant and prideful, even though he knew one day he was going to be their judge. He never took anything that wasn't his. And, and not only that, he was always content with God, his father, the whole time he was on earth. He never coveted. He never said... He was never discontent in his heart and blaming his father for anything. He was perfect. And God put him on a cross. The father put him on a cross, the son of God. In our place, he became sin. It's this idea of he, uh, he took our sin. He was, in the, he was cursed as if he was sin, but not that. It was, he took on the curse. He was separated fully from his father, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is a beautiful idea. We use this word double imputation. Imputation is a big word, but it's just this idea that God is saying, here's my church's sin. I'm putting it on Jesus on the cross. And here's all this righteousness and all this heavenly inheritance that Jesus is owed, and I'm putting it on the church. This is, uh, this is unworldly. This is the opposite of the way the world works. And this is uh, the love of our God. And so I want to challenge you. I want to implore you for anyone that doesn't know the forgiveness of Christ and doesn't have his sins put on Christ, I want to encourage you today, leave your sins behind and hold fast to Jesus. Believe on him for whoever calls on his name will be saved. You will have your sins removed, and he will have his righteousness put on you. So that whenever, whenever the Father looks at you, in some way he's seeing Jesus. He's seeing Jesus' righteousness, definitely. Don't you see that? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that something you want to hold up, take hold of? Let me tell you, this is delicious. Come and take and eat. Believe in Jesus today. Let's pray. Oh, God, uh, we thank you so much for the love of Christ. We thank you for how he bore our cross. He died the death we all deserve. He lived the life we should all live but don't. Lord, help us to remember the coming judgment, to remember your love, and help us to respond to that memory with love for our neighbors and sharing the gospel and serving them and, and imploring them to take hold of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.